right, welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. My name is Scott McKenzie, and this podcast is uniquely positioned. And what I mean by that, we bring the medical industry, the medical professionals to you, and we talk about better pain management. We talk about rehab after surgery. We talk about improved mobility. And we talk about preventative care. And you know what else? We talk about so much more on this particular podcast. Now, thank you for joining this podcast. So let's get on with the interview. All right, gents, welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. We've got an incredible panel of big thinkers going to be talking about innovation, which is always important, especially in the field of uh, medicine. And uh, we have some of the best in that particular category. But before we get going, once again, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything that's associated with uh physical therapy, or any of the subjects that we have uh, discussed on In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy, just go out to corephysicaltherapy.com. They've got a little dog on, uh, you know, robot. If you want to talk to somebody, you can get your answers there. Boom. So no, no excuses why you can't get going. All right. We've got a panel. You know, Dr. Rick, I'm not going to go down that road, but we've got two other, uh, in, or three other, <laughs> Math is not my strong suit, apparently. But we've got three other individuals that uh, need introduction. We're going to start with uh, Dr. Brady. Dr. Brady, give us a little 411, a little back story of who you are. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate you having me on tonight. So my name is Dr. Paul Brady. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee. I grew up in Washington, D.C. and did a lot of training in different places. Ended up with Dr. Stephen Burkhart doing my shoulder fellowship. So I'm a shoulder specialist in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, there you go. And, and in fact, that's going to be the uh, the topic of discussion. Wow. Correct. How about how that works out? All right, Alex, give us a little background. Hey, guys. I'm Alex Deagle. I am uh, from Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm a physical therapist with Tennessee Orthopedic Clinics. Um, grew up in Knoxville, went to school at UT in Knoxville and got my doctorate of physical therapy in Chattanooga in Tennessee. So thanks for having me on tonight, Scott. Oh, uh, definitely a pleasure. And uh, uh, last but not least, talk to us, Wilson, about your background. Hi, uh, thanks again for having me on. My name's Wilson Rains. Uh, I'm a uh, clinic director for the CORE Clinic in Alcoa, Tennessee, but I live in Knoxville. I'm from Churchill, Tennessee. Like Alex, I uh, I guess, unfortunately, lately, I'm a Tennessee volunteer, uh, but uh, I went there for physical therapy school as well, and uh, glad to be here. Talk to oh, you guys. We won't talk about the balls. I'm sorry. We won't. From a football perspective, well, we won't. Thank goodness. All right, Dr. Rick, they're all warmed up. Take it away, my friend. First of all, hi, I'm Rick Lehman, and I want to thank everybody tonight uh, for talking about a topic that is unbelievably timely, and, and that is shoulder instability. And I think that this has gone uh, full circle in terms of when I was a fellow years ago, we were doing Bristol reconstructions, which uh, you guys know, Scott doesn't, but everybody else knows what that is. And um, we then went to arthroscopic reconstructions and now we're back to doing uh, bony procedures that are uh, what we call it a ladder J now, but it's very similar and so we're going to kind of um, talk about shoulder instability and break it down. So to start, Dr. Brady, could you please just give us a little anatomy lesson? Talk to us about the anatomy of the anterior shoulder, the anatomy of the posterior shoulder, and, and what happens when you dislocate your shoulder, either multidirectionally or 
anteriorly or posteriorly and, and just kind of the, the anatomic basis of, of instability. Yeah, we'll do Rick. Thanks. Thanks again for having me. So the shoulder in general is a very inherently unstable joint, right? It's much like a golf ball sitting on a tee and everything turns sideways. So that doesn't provide much stability, obviously. And so what provides the stability are the surrounding structures. And there's what we call primary stabilizers and then there's secondary stabilizers. Your primary stabilizers are the ligaments that surround the ball and attach to the socket. And those are your glenohumeral ligaments and they attach via a structure called the labrum. And you know, people have heard of labral tears in athletes, that's a real common injury. Well, that's the primary stabilizing structure of the shoulder. And then you have the secondary stabilizing structures which are the soft tissues around that, which is the, uh, the rotator cuff essentially. So with instability, you get an imbalance in the stabilizing structures of the shoulder. Typically, they happen with an injury or in, in the scheme of uh, posterior dislocations. Those are more frequently uh, seizure activity. Posterior dislocations are, are, are kind of rare as compared to anterior dislocations. It's probably 10 to 1 anterior to posterior. Posterior subluxation is relatively common. But posterior dislocations are extremely uncommon. But nonetheless, your anterior dislocation typically occur from a traumatic event to the shoulder as we see in, in athletics frequently. Um, a fall directly onto the shoulder, outreach shoulder, and then your arm gets pulled back. That's a, those are common mechanisms of anterior shoulder instability. And during that process, the ball of the socket actually comes, uh, the ball actually comes out of the socket, okay? And to do that, it has to do damage. It's a guarantee. It's going to do damage. It's either going to damage the labral structures and the, and the ligaments, or it's going to damage the rotator cuff, or it's going to do a combination thereof. So that's kind of the basic uh, uh, theory behind shoulder instability. And specifically, let's talk about the labrum and the capsular structures, and then let's talk about the biomechanics or the mechanism of anterior instability versus posterior instability. So what, what position is the arm in when someone dislocates their shoulder anteriorly? Well, that's, that's typically your abduction, external rotation position. You know, that's, uh, that, that's, a much, that, that's a common mechanism for anterior shoulder instability. And then in posterior instability, what happens? Well, posterior instability, a lot of, again, posterior dislocation is extremely rare, but, um, but when that does happen, your, your posterior cuff is strong and your posterior deltoid overtakes essentially your anterior stabilizing capabilities and you actually dislocate posteriorly. Or you can get posterior subluxation, which is much more common. For example, linemen are, are your quintessential posterior instability, although it's not, you know, it's not dislocating, it's subluxating. And, and, and they get that from the, you know, from the position where they're holding back these 300 pound giants and, and they get that posterior directed force on the, on the glenoid from the humerus. And so that's, that's the, typically the, the energy that's, that's imparted when you're, when you're discussing posterior shoulder uh, stability. And, and real quick, why don't you describe multi-directional instability? Who, who gets that and, and, and kind of what is that? Yeah. 
So multi-directional instability, also we, we, we kind of coined it as MDI, multi-directional instability. Uh, that, you're going to see that in your younger, typically female patients who just have a lot of ligamentous laxity. They can make their joints go in places that are completely unnatural. Um, uh, sometimes they may or may not have a collagen disorder, like a connective tissue disorder, like an Ehlers-Danlos or, or, or some other uh, connective tissue disorder disorder, but their shoulder is just loosey-goosey, right? It'll go in any direction you want to pull it. And, 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 uh, and literally in the clinic, you can, you can pull them down and you'll see that big sulcus sign. You can almost dislocate them anteriorly or posteriorly. And that's what we call MDI or multidirectional instability. So let's break it down just a little bit. So athlete comes in, you're playing high school football or college football. They dislocated their shoulder. They went to the emergency room and they show up in Dr. Brady's office Tuesday morning, Monday morning. How are you going to tell us about the exam and then tell us how you're going to work that athlete up? Yeah. So, so, you know, everything begins with the story, right? And the stories are the, that's my favorite part of the job. Let's hear the story. You know, um, if you have any video, I'd love to see the video, right? I mean, the nowadays they all have video of their dislocation events. So it's fantastic. Um, so, you know, you want to get a good history. How did you do this? Is this the first time you did it? Before you did it, did you have any shoulder symptoms before? Did you have some subluxation before this occurred? And then this was the final event. A very important thing for me in the history is tell me how long it was out and tell me how they put it back in. Okay. Because those number of hours almost perfectly correlate to the amount of damage that you're going to see on their MRI or particularly in the operating room. If they're out for two, three, four hours, this is a bad actor. Okay. Um, if the, if they were able to, if the uh, trainer was able to get it back in on the field, that's a much better situation. Uh, how easy was it to relocate? You know, if they're able to relocate it very easily, it actually might be more unstable than, than, than a shoulder that was very difficult to put back in. So history is key, right? Uh, my next step in the workup is going to be physical exam. The physical exam, you know, typically you'll, you'll, you'll have pretty uh, standard things that, that show up with uh, anterior instability, at least. Posterior instability also, but posterior instability is a little harder to pick up on physical exam, and it's more of a history uh, for me. Uh, but the anterior in instability, the, the main thing is they're going to they're gonna have positive labor findings, O'Driscoll, or which is also Mayo Shear exam, the O'Brien's test is, is usually going to be positive. And then the, 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 the winner for me is the Job apprehension relocation test. You know, I mean, if that's, that's positive, which is going to be positive, if they actually had a true dislocation event, uh, um, that's pretty classic for your anterior instability situation. So from there, you know, x-rays are key. You get, get orthogonal views and uh, um, get the grassy views key for me. Uh, try to get a, 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 S, a picture of whether they have a heel sex deformity. What kind of deformity? Do they have a glenoid fracture? Sometimes these, you know, 20, 30-year-olds will actually have so much trauma that they've fractured their anterior glenoid. And, and, um, and so you can see that on x-rays. And on the heel sex, you know, is the heel sex large? Where is it located? That x-rays help, but CT scans a little bit better for that. 
And then beyond that, then, then we send them next for the MRI and the CT scan. And, uh, and I think both of those are really important. You know, MRI is great. I love MRI for soft tissue, but there's nothing that beats a CT scan for bony architecture and really being able to, to get a good mental picture of exactly what's going on in this, in this athlete's shoulder. So, and, and then from there, we, do, we, we have a long discussion about, okay, what now? Uh, and I have some reasonably strong opinions on that which we can get into if you want to so 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 before we go down down that was excellent before we get get down this path i want to ask you two questions one i want to you're going to tell us what a hill sax is and then you're going to tell us about neurologic deficit did, did you ever see any axillary neuroscience how how did what, what is all that yeah. So with, with dislocations, you know, in, in my mind, you've got this 50 year age cutoff, right? If you're 50 or younger, then you're probably going to run down the labral tear track. Okay. If you're 50 or older, you're probably going to run down the rotator cuff track. But like I said before, you're going to do some damage if you truly dislocate your shoulder. There's no doubt about it. Okay. So, so examine, yeah, it's, it's key. You don't see neurologic issues very much in, in your young population. You see it a ton in your, in your elderly or your older population. And, and again, that goes back to the amount of time that they were dislocated, you know, and I had one, one last week that, that they came to the ER, they couldn't get them back in. And unfortunately they, they got left out for about 26 hours. Ooh. Well, you know, that's a, that's a complete axillary nerve injury, which is likely never to recover, you know, uh, which is a, a lifetime, uh, deficit for this lady, you know? Um, and, and so, so, so that, that, that's a key is, is the, the nerve, uh, exam, not, not only the axillary, but the musculocutaneous that can get, that can get dinged, you know, seldom do I see them be permanent, but in this lady, I think it's probably going to be permanent, unfortunately. So. And, and, and Dr. Burkhardt's famous for his on track, off track, uh, description of Hill Sachs lesion. So tell, tell, what is a Hill Sachs lesion? So the, yeah, the Hill Sachs, You've got the you've got the uh, glenoid side and you've got the humeral side, right? And so when you dislocate that thing, um, the humerus sits on the edge of the glenoid for however long you're dislocated. So that does damage to both sides. It does damage to the glenoid side, which is usually what we call the bank art tear or the anterior labral tear usually goes inferior and actually it typically goes posterior inferior that labral tear does. So that's on the glenoid side. And then on the humeral side, we see this indentation from the time that that humerus is spent on the edge of the glenoid. You still have all the muscles, muscles around the shoulder that are actually hyperactive because you know, they're, they're experiencing so much pain. So they're, they're contracting violently and that causes an indentation on the humeral side, which is what we call the hill sacs defect. And those two things and how they marry up to one another is really how we determine uh, what we're going to do in the operating room. You know, I mean, you had mentioned the 
Bristow or the Ladder J or Bony Procedures or Iliac Crest or 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 you know cork you know coracoid or distal clavicle graft. There's lots of bony procedures we can do when there's significant bone loss, and that's what you see in those in those situations where the patient has been dislocated for an extended period of time. And you'll see it on both sides. You'll see bone loss on the glenoid side, and you'll see that indentation, which essentially equals bone loss on the humeral side with the Hill Sachs defect. And, and, and why don't you give us one, just, just a quick brief explanation of, of, so you got the CT scan, you're, you're, you're kind of looking at your defect, kind of explain to us on track and off track lesions real quick. And then, and then I'm going to ask you about this first time dislocator and, and, you know, do we, do, do we send them to therapy? Do we send them over right. to Wilson or Alex, or do we operate Absolutely. on them? But before we get into that, um, Explain this off-track, on-track thing. Sure. So on-track, off-track, um, uh, uh, Yamamoto first, dis, uh, Itoi and, and Yamamoto first described this in, in Japan. And, and Dr. Burkhart kind of Americanized it and really kind of made it more understandable, I believe, to the masses, you know. And essentially, it's the relationship between the humerus and the glenoid and and is do you have a situation where you're likely to be stable or likely to be unstable? It's a mathematical equation. Point uh, point eight three times the the the, the normal diameter. Uh, minus the defect and, you know, big math equation. I won't get into the details of that, but essentially it is an equation that we can do both preoperatively from the CT scan. I think the CT scan is the most accurate method to kind of get an idea of whether you're going to deal with an on-track or off-track, or we can, we can also measure that assess, or we can assess that with measurements in the operating room at the time of surgery. Uh, but it's a good idea to know beforehand, obviously, because, because then you can kind of tailor your surgical plan to what you think might be the pro most appropriate method of fixation. So it's, it's a, an extension of what we call the engaging or non-engaging lesion, right? So engaging means that when you when you're in the operating room and you take them in the the uh, uh, the dangerous position, that that heel sex actually falls over top of the glenoid. That's an engaging or what we call an off-track lesion. Whereas if you get them in the operating room and they're actually on the glenoid the whole time and they don't fall off the glenoid, that's an on-track lesion or a non-engaging heel sex. So. And, 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 and I think it's important to note that when, when they're, they are off-track, the shoulder is much more likely to dislocate, correct? So that's going to kick the shoulder out and then... That is correct. That's, that, that's where you deal with, and that's where we have the algorithm. Um, and Dr. Dr. Bur Burkhart Nitoy's uh, uh, paper really did a good job in kind of separating these, these injuries into three different categories, right? We have the on track, um, completely on track, completely off track, in between. And the in between is where I'm a huge believer in the combination of the Bankart Remplissage. And actually, I'm, I'm, I lean much more toward really pushing that envelope in all honesty, because I'm a, I'm a huge fan. So. so so before we get into the specifics of the surgery, tell me about the 19-year-old the who dislocates his shoulder playing football and the 55-year-old who dislocates his shoulder falling down the stairs and you're worried about the rotator cuff. And so you got two first-time dislocators. How are you going to treat 
each one of them and 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 kind of what's your thoughts on on uh surgery versus non-surgery for 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 the young athlete who's a first-time dislocator yeah so so this is a conversation that jim bradley and i had for about 45 minutes two weeks ago okay jim bradley is a team doc for the uh, um for the pittsburgh steelers pittsburgh steelers great friend of mine and he said his his uh, treatment algorithm for these young athletes in the last five years has completely changed. And I would totally agree with him in that I am much more aggressive with a young athlete, first time dislocator to say, let's fix it. Let's fix it now. And you'll be done with it. Okay. Because if you can fix it early, if you can fix it before every repeat dislocation, they do significant additional damage to the, the glenoid and the humerus. And you can take a, a situation which is uh, very addressable with a soft tissue procedure, such as a bank card remplissage. And after two, three, four dislocations, you have no other alternative but, but, but a ladder J. And, and Jim, Jim's reasoning for this was because of, in the NFL combines, he sees all these patients uh, that have had shoulder surgery, have had later, ladder J's with screws in every which direction and, 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 you know, who knows where the coracoid graft is and, you know, how does he counsel a, um, um, an owner to say, okay, do you make a $10 million investment in the sky with two screws that are pointing, you know, toward his brain? I don't know. You know, I mean, he's not been unstable, but nonetheless, the screws are nowhere close to where they need to be. So uh, another subject, but, but, but so my, my, uh, my default for a young patient is let's fix it and let's fix it quickly. For your older patient, you know, the, re- the literature has shown that, that your re- re-dislocation is much less once, you, once you're above age 20, 25 or so. So I think that's a great candidate for potential non-operative treatment. Uh, and, but I always get an MRI, you know, because if they do have a significant traumatic rotator cuff tear, then I'm going to advise surgery most likely in that patient also, at least if they're the, you know, uh, 40 to to 65 year old weekend warriors, which we have a fair amount of here in in Tennessee. Um, You know, if they're 75, 80 plus, yeah, we're going to, we're going to treat that conservatively almost all day long. So. So, so we're going to take one quick step back here and we're going to talk about multi-directional instability. And I want to ask both Wilson and Alex, kind of their thoughts on how do you rehab just like you said the 14 year old swimmer who's just grossly unstable um maybe has ed3 can do all kind of weird things with her fingers and her elbows how do we rehab those and let's start with alex and then we'll move on to wilson and i want to hear kind of your thoughts on um the initial care and treatment of 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 that multi-directional uh as you said loosey-goosey uh Teen. Yeah, so uh, kind of like mirroring what Dr. Brady had mentioned earlier, it starts with the patient's history. And, and so we tried to do a really good job with kind of finding out their background, what's been going on with their shoulder, how many times they've had uh, either dislocations or subluxations. Um, you know, all the time you'll get the 14 or 15 year old that says, oh, yeah, my shoulder went out three times yesterday. Well, you kind of got it tease through that and, and see, well, what are, what are they talking about with that? Is it just popping a lot on them? Does, does it feel unstable to them or are they actually having recurrent um, subluxations in the shoulder even during you know everyday activity? 
And so typically we'll start with an assessment of general musculoskeletal, see how their cuff is working, see how their deltoid and their periscapular muscles are working. And oftentimes we're starting at the periscapular level. And, and the way that I explain it to them and, and mom and dad quite a bit is, you know, we got to work off of a really stable base. And so think about walking in, you know, really deep, loose sand and how difficult it is to push off of your, your arms not going to be, work very well. Uh, if your periscapular muscles and your upper back muscles aren't nice and stable and strong. So we'll typically start there and, and start working our way outward towards the cuff from there. Um, obviously as they're tolerating it and, and hopefully working back to, to, uh, return to sport as, as with whatever they need. And, and Wilson, tell me about return to sport. How long does it take? So, so, um, athlete comes in, has had number of episodes of subluxation. Um, maybe like you said, has a little bit of popping, but you don't know if that's really subluxation or truly just some anatomical popping. Well, and, and the first question mom or dad is going to ask is, you know, when can Melissa go back to swimming or when can Melissa go back to volleyball? So, so walk us through that a little bit. Walk us through your thought process of taking them from the first visit in the clinic to uh, return to sport. And what, what do you, what do you tell mom and dad? When, when can they go back to play sports? Um, I, I think it all starts in the exam and it's, it's helpful for them to see, um, Dr. Brady said, you know, the hallmark is kind of the apprehension test. And I think that does have sort of a, a decent correlation with their ability to, uh, to return to sport. And obviously the sport's important too. One of the, one of the first ones I, I saw was, a uh, one that one of our fellow PTs, Joe Carpenter sent to me as a 14 year old rugby player had several recurrent, uh, anterior, subluxations according to Joe he saw him personally works with the team uh, but he he didn't have much uh, uh, apprehension early on until really uh, 70 80 degrees uh, in terms of the external rotation so a patient like that I was kind of skeptical and I try to try to set the bar pretty low for a high impact sport like that something where he's going to be pushing off uh, he's going to be getting hit uh, and I, I try to show them you know if he's unable to you know, for the O'Brien's test, you know, if they can't hold their arm up even in the position or they have a ton of apprehension, I'm like, you know, it's, it's going to take a while until we can get back to him. Even doing push-ups is a great example of a, an activity that can be really tough uh, for, for someone to condition for, for sport um, and try and show mom and dad, you know, here are the deficits now. I know you want to play and then be good about communicating, you know, the dangers of, of additional dislocation, even if they're uh, – an Ehlers-Danlos patient are, are recurrently in, unstable. Swimming is tough too because they, a lot of times they don't necessarily see the risk uh, uh, to, when it's not an impact sport and that type of thing. But I try and show them the baseline of where they're at and then show them a few things that we need to get to, like resisted PNF patterns, let's say, or, or rhythmic oscillations that they need to be able to perform to be sure that the shoulder is going to be stable with whatever they're doing in the specific sport. And, and talk about the kinetic chain. Talk about hip stabilizers, mid-trunk stabilizers. How, do, how does all that play in in terms of um, the shoulder, posterior shoulder, et cetera? And then, and then do you tell them six weeks? Do you tell them six months? How, how long does it take to what, – what are your expectations for return to sport in a non-contact sport? 
Um, are you referring to recurrent instability or after the the repair that Dr. Brady? Well, let, let's talk about we need we'll we'll have we'll ask Dr. Brady in a second about how he's going to fix his first time dislocator, but I'm talking about the multi-directional instability. Um, they probably sublocks. They probably never really dislocated. They have shoulder pain. They have other um, brightened symptoms. You know, they're unstable all over their body. They're dislocated. Their kneecaps are a little bit unstable. G give me a time frame, and then and then tell me about the kinetic chain in terms of of, of the rehab for for that athlete. Right. So it, it does start kind of from the trunk outwards. If, if you have an ED patient or an MDI patient, um, definitely want to start like at the shoulder with periscapular muscles, uh, rhomboids, middle traps, lower traps, uh, all of those. So you can build a stable base so the shoulder blade is moving properly uh, so we don't have any impingement uh, and so that we can stabilize the shoulder. Um, if I've got an impact athlete with an instability, particularly if the season is starting, uh, their alignment, let's say, um, I, I would say I, I would estimate eight to 12 weeks, probably on the front end. Uh, if it's something that's been going on at multiple joints, uh, I would probably tell them three to six months to full return to impact sport. Now, if you've got a swimmer uh, with more mild pain, um, they've had one or two instances. It's not an Ehlers-Danlos diagnosis. Sometimes maybe they're back in the water four to six weeks, depending on their event um, and depending on their, their ability to to recover the rugby athlete actually was uh was back to play in the one that i was referring to uh in between six and eight weeks if i recall correctly which was pretty pretty surprising to me but but he was able to kind of fulfill all the all the tests that i put him through and able to get back to to function without any apprehension or any anterior instability wow that's excellent that that is really good so dr brady let's talk about that athlete that first time dislocator young 25 years old or younger had the first instability episode, had to be reduced. Um, and and you, you've been a little bit more aggressive recently to fix that athlete. What's your go-to procedure? They, they have a small hill sacks. They don't really have uh, – this is a first-time dislocation, so they don't really have a bony anterior bank heart. What, what is your go-to procedure? Yeah, so so uh, so again, both preoperatively and interoperatively, you really got to assess the amount of bone loss, right? Um, so preoperatively, the CT scan is key. The MRI is helpful, but the CT scan is key. And then intraoperatively, looking at it from your anterior superior lateral portal, or looking at it from the top down and then get a good measuring probe in intraarticularly to measure the diameter of the inferior glenoid, mid-glenoid, superior glenoid, and see if you have a, an inverted pair situation or, or you have significant bone loss. And, and in that first time dislocator, typically you're not gonna have a lot of bone loss. You know, um, uh, uh, the study, who did that? Um, can't remember who did that, but, but essentially even a first time dislocator is probably going to have on average of 12 to 15% bone loss for most first time dislocators. Okay. Um, and so that, that, that's not inconsequential, obviously, but it's not critical bone loss in my opinion. So in that situation, a bank art repair, which, which I use, you know, I use a knotless mechanism and, and good bone bed preparation is key. Uh, um, freeing up the, the labral adhesions, you know, because the labrum, when it tears, 
it tears and then it heals, you know, and it, it, and it always heals. It just heals in a loosened position. I like the analogy that, that somebody taught me one time is if you lay in a hammock and one of the sides of the hammock is broken, you can still lay in the hammock, but you gotta just balance yourself just right, right? And if you fall asleep, you fall out of the hammock. So we gotta take that loose side of the hammock and we've gotta tighten that thing up, okay? And so you really wanna bring your inferior capsulolabral structures superiorly, okay? That's, that's critical. That to me is much more important than making what they call the bumper, you know? I mean, the bumper is, you know, yeah, I make the bumper and, and I get the bumper, but I don't believe in the bumper, you know? I believe in that inferior to superior shift. That's what I truly believe in. So, so that's the key for me for the bank art repair. There's another study that showed that you got to use minimum three anchors. I think I, I, I almost never get out of there without four to five anchors for a bank art repair. And their, their success rate was tied to the number of anchors that they utilize. And more fixation points along that glenoid is going to get better healing because some other studies have shown that most of your healing tends uh, tends to be essentially little spot wells where those anchors are okay rather than you think oh yeah we're just going to make this you know back to the way god made it uh, we're not you know uh, unfortunately you know we get one god-given shoulder and once that's gone we can do the best we can which is usually pretty darn good but we're never going to get it quite back to that state okay so these little spot welds if you can have more of those spot welds i think that's critical and the studies have borne that out also so at least a four anchor bank art repair and then i have a very soft trigger trigger on the remplissage right whether it's shallow whether it's deep i mean after the bank art repair and really during the bank art repair uh, before i cut any of those sutures actually i, I take the patient through the the full range of motion and see if that uh hill sax comes even close to my bank art repair and if it does I'm going to add the remplissage to it. Even for a shallow hill sex, I'll usually add the remplissage. And, and, and thankfully, you, you would think that they're going to lose rotation, they're going to lose a lot of motion, and that's just not borne itself out in either my clinical experience or in the literature. They lose very little range of motion in the long run with adding the remplissage. And the, adding the remplissage has improved success rates from, you know, all studies combined, maybe a, a failure rate of eight uh, up to 15% with a bank art alone. Most bank art studies, not in the face of glenoid bone loss, obviously, or not significant glenoid bone loss, less than 15% bone loss. Most bank art combination studies have have, have had uh, re-dislocation rates of in the five, three, five, eight percent range. And so it's almost half of your uh, 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 recurrent instability rate as with just a bank heart repair alone. So that's my, that's my, that's my go-to for my young athletes with, uh, uh, with instability, even, even my collision athletes. So, so, so let, let you talk about this replissage, explain, explain, what is that? I mean, how do you, you put anchors in the defect? Explain how you do your remplissage. Okay. Um, I'm going to explain it. I don't know, Scott, if I can share my screen because I've got it teed up here. Can oh, I share yeah. my screen? This will be good. All right. So here we go. Host it up. Oh, no, the host it, it. I got it. it. I got it there. I got it there now. Do it again. On, Scott, you're on cue here. Do it again. <laughs> yeah, go right ahead, man. You should have <laughs> access. All right. Can you all see my screen now? Uh, negative. No. Uh, cancel. 
Let's see. Can you see it now? Uh, nope. Well, let me try one more time. Start okay. screen share. Desktop one, share. Okay, I'm, I'm going to give up pretty quickly on this. I don't want to waste our time. Sorry about that. Uh, you know, I have it already up on my Google. I have a couple of examples if you're interested in talking from that. Sure. Why, yeah, look at that. How about that, Dr. Rick? <laughs> that's pretty good. So <laughs> I wanted to know what it was all about. That's right. Here we go. All right. Tell me which one you want. Let's take a look. Uh, I like, I like, I like uh, left side, second one down. That's it. Okay, here we go. Please be bigger. And, of course, it's not. So you're just going to have to. Uh, it's there. Okay, we'll it's just there. go with that. There okay. you go. Okay, that's fine. Uh, so, so, so here in this picture, let's go, go to, go to the one. Yeah, that one right there. There you go. Okay. So in this picture, this is essentially how I do it. I, I, I feel like my technique's a little more eloquent than this, but, <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, you know, we got a bank cart repair there on the left-hand side. And then on the humeral side, you see that single anchor with a suture tying down the infraspinatus into that hill sacs defect. Okay, so that's essentially what we do is we 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 uh, we compress the soft tissue structures, i.e., the capsule and the infraspinatus, into the hill sacs defect, thus creating a uh, uh, a situation where instead of that defect being intraarticular and potentially engaging, now that defect is no longer able to engage because it's extra-articular. Uh, you've filled that defect with the infraspinatus. And you would think that that shrinks the infraspinatus, thus causing some pretty significant rotation losses. But that, again, as I've mentioned, that has just not been borne out in the literature. And, and the, the amount of loss of uh, uh, rotation is negligible in the five-degree range, which, of course, five degrees is, is a world of difference for a fastball pitcher. But for the vast majority of patients, five degrees is not a big deal, you know? So, um, so that's essentially how we do it. So, Alex, so let, let's let's kind of take the next step. Um, the athlete has their their reconstruction, um, their, their bank heart, uh, plus or minus a remplissage. And let's talk about how long you immobilize them for. And then we're going to kick it over to um, Alex and Wilson. And they're going to explain how we do the rehab subsequent to the surgery. So you want so me to talk long, about how long, the, you, how long do you immobilize them for, for if you just have an isolated bank heart or yeah. do you change the, the downtime if you had a remplissage? Gotcha. I, I, I rehab them both just to make it easy. Um, you know, it gets a little complicated if you're changing your rehab all the time. So, so um, uh, these guys know that my rehab on pretty much everything. I really only have two plans. Um, I guess I have three plans if you're talking about, uh, um, uh, you know, adhesive capsulitis, but, but essentially I have three physical therapy orders and, and, and I start at four weeks, uh, for the first four weeks, I let them do, um, uh, some, some scapular exercises. I let them do, uh, uh, some, some elbow hand wrist exercises. I let them externally rotate, um, at, in an active assisted manner, 
to about neutral up to 15, 20 degrees. Uh, but essentially what I'm telling them is just take it easy. It's going to get stiff. There's a 100% chance this is going to get stiff. And I think that's the greatest thing in the world. You know, if we can make your shoulder from a unstable shoulder to a lot of stiffness, I can deal with that. Okay. Cause then from stiffness, these master therapists can do their job. Okay. Um, and I put so much trust in these guys, right? Because, because they are with these patients every day for hours a day, or at least three times a week, you know, and, and so they're hands-on and they can really tailor each patient to what they actually need. And I think that's critical. I can't do that as a clinician. You know, I get to see them once every six weeks. Um, but, 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 you know, the therapist and they just do a masterful job at really kind of tailoring at four weeks, starting to get them out of that sling and really tailoring them to, to get their motion back. And, and, and Wilson, why don't you start? Um, the patient shows up, had surgery four weeks ago, kind of walk us through the rehab a little bit and then, and then we'll kick it over to Alex. Um, how do you start? You start with pendulums, you start with table slides. Do you, uh, is it all passive kind of, kind of give us your thought process or give us Dr. Brady's thought process. Well, um, generally early on, um, Huffs and labrums, really. I, I know Dr. Brady's not a huge fan of, of pushing into pain. And I, I tend to agree, particularly right off the bat, um, if you get a patient that's stiff already um, and you're going to you're going to really crank on them, uh, make a you're going to start the central pain pathway and you're going to start some muscle guarding right off the bat. I mean, if you want to arm wrestle somebody for 10 weeks then I guess you're welcome to do something like that. It really depends on the patient. A lot of times they'll come in uh, younger athletes, particularly uh, this is both a credit to their flexibility and Dr. Brady's surgery they'll come in with just tremendous motion. I'll, I'll give them a test. I'll have them do a few pendulums, uh, have them sort of active assisted use a pulley or something like that to see where they're going. And uh, I can't count the amount of times, particularly with the labor repair uh, where they sit back and they can get, you know, 140, 150 first day. So with that patient, I'll try and uh, make it a little bit more uh, involved with active assisted range of motion. I almost always go, um, if they're particularly guarded or particularly stiff, I'll start with passive or relatively true passive, progress to active assisted range of motion, try and get nearly full or full based on the protocol uh, until we start active range of motion, and then I'll proceed uh, based on pain. Uh, the one thing, I, uh, they do tend to be a little bit stiffer, whether it's muscle guarding uh, uh, or an apprehension or, or the anterior capsule uh, with that repair into external rotation. And I always kind of let them know on the front end, you know, that's going to be the stiffest part. It's by design. You dislocate your shoulder out here. We don't need it here right now. You need to kind of slowly return to that range of motion. And then once we're cleared uh, to begin resistance and strengthening, I'll start really close to the body. We'll do, you know, scapular activation, rows, that kind of thing, strengthen the, the periscapular muscles, and then progress to, you know, external rotation, internal rotation close to the body, and then get out here, you know, throwing athletes and doing all that kind of stuff. That's excellent. That's really excellent. So Alex, what do you have to add to that? Um, tell us, tell us about when you, you so the, the parents are going to ask, when can they lift weights? When can they be uh, more aggressive? What is the danger zone? What's the time frame that they have to worry about? Maybe their shoulder redislocating or doing something negative to the repair. So walk us through kind of the time frame and 
and when you're going to progress them to resistive training and how you're going to ease them back into sport. Let's say they're sports uh, lacrosse or hockey or something. Yeah. So the easy answer is uh, for the parents when they're asking all those questions about their son or daughter is uh, whenever Dr. Brady says so. so <laughs> that kind of gets me off the hook a little bit there. So, but uh, yeah, that usually doesn't, they usually want an answer right away. So, so we, we go over quite a bit of protocol and, you know, spend quite a bit of uh, time on the front end when we have them post-operatively about, you know, precautions, uh, considerations, protocol, what we're looking for as we advance to each stage. So as Wilson uh, talked about, you know, the first step is regaining flexibility. And so weeks four through eight to 10, we're working on regaining as much uh, normal flexibility and range of motion as we can. Typically that coincides with Dr. Brady rechecking them around 10 to 12 weeks post-op. And at that point we're transitioning to our strengthening program. And again, we start with periscapular upper back, make sure we're getting a really good stable base there, working out towards rotator cuff. And then as their pain is allowing and their strength and motion is coming along, then we'll get into sports specific activity, um, kind of like what Wilson was demonstrating, working on their cuff with the arm up in a 90-90 position as they're tolerating it. Um, we'll do some uh, D1, D2, uh, PNF flexion patterns, making sure that they're having good throwing motion, making sure that their hips and their core are engaging like, like they should be during those throwing patterns. Uh, so we'll do a lot of balance work while they're working the cuff um, and, and replicating some of those throwing motions along the way. So typically we'll, you know, again, a lot of education on the front end and we're, we're kind of making sure that they're comfortable with uh, the time frames that we've laid out for them. And um, so again, you know, that first four, four to six weeks range of motion, that second six week phase, we're into strengthening. And then at, at, um, four to six months, we're looking at that return to sport and or sports specific training, and then working towards that return to sport. That was outstanding. And let me let I me add one let me add one thing real quick. Uh, uh, and I think um, Wilson and Alex would probably confirm is that the Bankart Remplissage combo patients they hurt more. There's no doubt about it. They hurt more initially. Uh, they're probably a little stiffer initially, but in the long run, they do great. So, and and, and so along those lines, um, do you, do you think that your return to sports the same, or do you think it takes a little longer after you add a replicage? Um, what 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 are your thoughts on on kind of when when do the two curves kind of connect where? somebody who's had just straight, a straight bank heart and somebody who's had a remplissage in a bank heart become kind of the same patient. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good way to think about it, two curves, uh, because they are different curves. They're different trajectories. I would think at about three to four months, you got about the same patient, okay? Um, my, my release date is six months. It's almost always six months. Um, six months, I tell them, you're going to feel like your shoulder's 85 to 90% good, at 12 months, you're going to feel like it's 95 to 100%, hopefully 100% good, you know, and your young people are 100%. But, uh, um, that's kind of the time frame that I give pretty much everybody on that. Perfect. 
So tell us about the 50-year-old guy who dislocates his shoulder, comes in, maybe has some inability to lift his arm. How do you work that athlete up, and um, what are your thoughts in terms of care and treatment subsequent to uh, that workup? So the, um, um, you know, the, the initial visit, you described it perfectly. A lot of times they have what you would term a pseudoparalytic shoulder. You know, I mean, they, they truly cannot do hardly anything. It's all scapular motion. And, and, you know, whether it's a day or a week, you know, usually it's about a week, I guess, a week and a half or so to get into me. But a lot of times you're, you're really concerned. Is this a nerve injury? Is this, you know, and so you do a good sensory exam. It doesn't seem like, you know, they have any sensory deficits and it feels like that the, the deltoids firing, you know, you can usually palpate that. Um, but from there, from there, I, 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 my trigger is very quick for the MRI. Okay. Let's see what the damage is. Okay. Um, they like that. I like that. That's just a good way to do it. In the meantime, get yourself out of the sling. I don't want you in the sling. I don't care what it is. I don't want you in the sling unless this has fallen out in your sleep, which is very unlikely. But, but as long as it's not doing that, get out of the sling, start moving. I'll show them some wall crawls and, and a table slide and a few basic things. Um, pendulum, although I really don't like the pendulum, but nonetheless, uh, I'll show them some basic uh, shoulder activities to do between now and the next time I see them. And then the next time I see them, we have the MRI. And, and really my, my advice from there kind of depends on the MRI. You know, um, if hopefully what we have is, is some, some labral tearing and maybe a little bony bank cart and, and, and the rotator cuff, maybe it looks a little dinged up, but all, this, all in all, really not too bad. And if that's the case, we are going to rehab the heck out of this thing. Okay. Um, we're going to try to our best to get you a good shoulder. And there's probably about a 90% chance that you're probably not going to need surgery. Okay. Um, however, if we get that MRI and it shows an acute traumatic supraspinatus extending to infraspinatus tear, well, that's a much bigger deal. Okay. Um, that's somebody I'm going to say, yeah, yeah. Sooner is better, better than later. Let's go ahead and, and, and get you fixed and, and get that shoulder working again. So. And, and, and so along those lines, and, and we'll start with Alex this time, What's the rehab? Guy comes in, maybe he's got a small rotator cuff tear, maybe had a degenerative tear in the first place, dislocates his shoulder, falling down the stairs after being overserved. And 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 so what how are you gonna rehab that guy? So it really will depend on their initial presentation. Are they super painful? Are we gonna to have to calm this way down and get a lot of the inflammation down? Or is their pain relatively under control and they're, you know, trying to move their arm? They're just not really very good at moving their arm yet. And so if they're super painful, uh, we still have quite a bit of inflammation and muscle guarding, then, you know, we got to take a little bit of a step back, use our pain relieving modalities. You know, maybe we'll put a TENS unit on there while we're doing some passive mobility, see if we can calm it down a little bit, get some of their muscle guarding to, to let go. Um, we're doing a lot of manual work and passive mobility early on with that patient, trying to build their motion and confidence and, and movement back. If they're moving pretty well um, or if they're, they're not feeling too bad as far as their pain goes, um, but they're just not moving it well, then we're jumping right in, almost mirroring where we would be at that four-week mark um, after a surgery. And so we're doing active assisted mobility uh, making sure that we're not creating any substitute patterns, um, you know, poor 
you know, scapular work when there's, they should be lifting the arm and, and having that nice uh, roll and glide within the, within the shoulder joint. And so then we're, we're really kind of approaching it like they've already had the surgery at that four-week mark and progressing through active assisted and active into strengthening. So it really just kind of depends on where they are on, on that first day that we see them in clinic. And Wilson, any addition to that, or, or, or maybe more importantly, how do we progress from, from there? The athlete comes in, uh, pseudoparalysis is better, still kind of weak, having pain, a little nervous about their shoulder popping back out. Um, what, what's the course from there, getting them back to playing golf, getting them back to playing Tuesday night softball? Yeah, I, uh, I, I see this patient presentation a lot and usually you know they're they're the most compliant actually you know the weekend warrior uh trying to head out to the country club which is a good thing uh and it it depends golf golf is one of the one of the tough ones at times you know if they're a right-handed golfer got to get a lot of right-handed external rotation um to to be able to take the club back you want to show them uh and and get a good idea you know if you got a 50 year old guy who's been possibly uh you know a manual labor use their arms a lot. Uh, they did a lot of weightlifting. They played football when they were younger. They may not have the healthiest shoulder joint. You know, they've got 160 uh, flexion on the right or 160 abduction. You know, you want to present uh, attainable goals and then show them kind of what they need specifically to return to sport. Uh, I would agree that that you have to kind of be able to read your patient's mentality coming in if they're really fearful or anxious try and kind of ease them in, use some modalities, use a lot of manual on the front end, but then try and encourage them to, to emphasize the things that are going to be most difficult. If you've got a supraspinatus repair, for instance, you know, early on, if they're getting pretty good flexion, uh, external rotation mobility, start doing active assisted abduction. That's going to be the, the toughest for them uh, to, to return to full range of motion and strength. Uh, if they, uh, particularly let's say they're a right-handed golfer. I'll keep using that example, you know, to take the explosion from a straight arm cross body adducted here to push out through the, through the strike, that's going to take a lot of impact. So keep that in mind and express that to them kind of as a way of motivating them. And then uh, you can even start using, you know, taking half swings in the clinic, tossing some strap weights on there to keep them motivated throughout the, the range of motion process, even if they're not ready for the, the full strength. No, I think that's excellent. So moving along a little bit, Dr. Brady, let's let's talk about that athlete, 6'3", weighs 290. He's an offensive lineman. He has uh, had three or four episodes of what you think are posterior shoulder instability. You get an MRI. Maybe it shows some capsule labral uh, stripping posteriorly. How are you going to fit? What's your go-to repair, surgical repair and then let's talk about the rehab a little bit. So with, 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 with posterior subluxation or posterior instability, uh, it's like my favorite operation, okay? Because number, number one, technically, it's easy, you know? I mean, if you get your portals in the right place, it's so much easier than a bank heart repair. Bank heart repair, you're down in that corner of the glenoid. Man, that's a hard place to get sometimes. Okay. But the posterior glenoid piece of cake. Okay. Now, now philosophically, the posterior is going to be repaired a little different than the anterior, right? Because the anterior, you have that inferior to superior shift that I said was so important. That's not the case with the posterior. Okay. Usually the posterior, you fix it as it lies. And you don't also, the other thing I do with 
anterior instability is I come a little onto the face of the glenoid. Now that does the whole bumper thing and, 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 but I think I, again, bumper, whatever, but I, I think, I think the, the, the assistance of coming on the glenoid is that you get a better uh, uh, position for your anchors. Posterior, I put them right on the edge of the glenoid. Okay. So again, I use a lot of anchors for posterior, a lot of uh, points of fixation, but you basically just repair it as it lies. The other thing I do with the posterior is I take a little bit more of the capsule because if you over tighten a lineman, they love you. Okay. Um, because now they can, they can hold and they don't get called for it because they can't externally rotate as much as they used to. Okay. So, so they can actually hold because they all hold, they hold on every play. Right. And so, but they can hold and they don't get that external rotation. And when they really externally rotate, that's when the ref sees them holding and they cause the flag. Okay. So if you can keep them a little, if you can cost them a little of their external rotation, you're going to be a hero um, for your, for your offensive or defensive line or offensive really. Cause, cause those are the ones that hold all the time, but. And, and so how long do you keep mobilized for? And then um, let's, let's talk about the rehab. So, so, I, almost identical rehab, four weeks in the slang. And then, you know, um, Alex and Wilson, go for it. Um, get them back. Uh, and, and, you know, I, just to keep things simple, I keep it all the same, six, month, six months full, uh, full release. So. Perfect. And some of that had some science to it also, right? Because because the, the the way, you know, the rotator cuff uh, has its uh, uh, strength is these things called Sharpies fibers, okay? Um, Sharpies fibers are the key to linking the soft tissue to the bone. And, 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 and same thing in the labrum. And those Sharpies fibers don't even show up histologically until about uh, eight weeks. And, and it's really about four months before you have a good number of them. So I think it's four to six months before you can uh, scientifically say, yeah, they're probably uh, at least approaching normal tissue strength of that repair. Agreed. I th and I think that's excellent. So Alex, do, do you rehab that athlete any differently with, with poster instability pattern who's had basically a bank heart repair and, and a little bit of a uh, capsular tightening or what, what's your go-to rehab protocol? Yeah. So, you know, we might watch a little bit on that external rotation, you know, like Dr. Brady was saying, if it's a really, really good solid repair and a little bit tighter, we're going to know that on the front end that, you know, we might not be moving as quickly into that rotation motion as we would otherwise. And so we just educate the patient on the front end about that and make sure that they're comfortable with, Hey, we're going to take this um, as it, as it lets us, we're not going to, you know, rush anything on it. Um, tighter is good when you've had a uh, instable or an unstable shoulder. So, um, you know, that that's a good thing. And we can work through the stiffness as we go along. I always try to tell them, you know, we, we're not going to get all of this back in one visit. We're, we're in this for the long haul. So, you know, hang in there with me as we work through it. And it's going to be a six to eight week process, but we're going to get, get everything back that you need and, and start working towards that, that strengthening. And Wilson, give us your pearls in terms of uh, rehab, strengthening, uh, biomechanics of a posterior shoulder, somebody with recurrent and, and, and that's right. Most of those people have recurrent subluxation. Sometimes it's a little harder, but harder of a diagnosis. 
Um, in my practice, it's all sports. I don't really see posterior dislocators too frequently, but we do see a lot of posterior subluxation. So, um, Wilson, what, what are the, what are the pearls in rehabbing that athlete? What, 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 what do we, what do we need to know? Uh, just sort of looking at the the mirror image of the joint. Honestly, you want to you want to strengthen and and stabilize the posterior cuff uh, early on. Uh, doing some gentle glides, kind of seeing what you're working with. Sometimes you may have a little bit more flexibility in the posterior uh, joint capsule than than you think you might. Uh, and then we're we're just working opposite. You know, for an anterior instability, maybe the most difficult thing would be uh, tolerating a, a sharp pressing motion, but um, it's sort of, I like the bench press analogy, you know, your anterior uh, dislocator, you got an issue when you're at the bottom of a bench press, right? Uh, we have to work our stability when you're at full extension. I love the, the lineman analogy. So you really want to work when you're at 90 degrees flexion, maybe a little bit of elbow flexion, working cuff engagement, uh, using kind of ball on the wall at uh, almost any um, glenohumeral angle, you know, start at, at abduction and maybe work your way to direct flexion, lean in a little bit of body weight in to make sure that that cuff's going to engage and support that posterior joint. Excellent. Thank you. So for our last topic, this is kind of um, timely and we're going to talk about multi-direction. I mean, we're going to talk about multiple instability episodes, multiple anterior uh, instability episodes, somebody that's either had a failed bank heart or has 25, 30% anterior uh, loss, bony loss. Um, Dr. Brady, what's your go-to procedure for that, for that athlete who, who may have a significant, like you said, in, inverted pair glenoid or just has significant anterior bony glenoid loss and comes in uh, plus or minus having surgery before, but obviously grossly unstable. So do you want the test answer or do you want my answer? Because they're different. <laughs> so the test answer obviously is a bony procedure, you know, but I'm telling you, I have all but abandoned bony procedures at this point. You know, rarely do I get somebody who I'm like, well, golly, there's, there's really nothing else I can do but a letter J. I mean, I, I, I've done a ton of letter J's and I'm a believer in the letter J and I do think that it's got... It, it, it's a great procedure. There's no doubt in the right hands. I think, I think it can be an extremely dangerous procedure. Um, uh, I, the risk of nerve injury with the latter J is, is exceedingly higher than it is with any type of arthroscopic surgery. So, um, but, but yes, it, it again, it kind of depends. I mean, if this again, if is, is a, is a college football prospect and and he's going to a, a great school and he and he has the 30 percent bone loss and he's failed a bank card that was well done by by somebody i know that does them really well then then i'm gonna go to a, a subscapularis splitting i don't take the subscap down but a subscapularis splitting ladder j and, and take his coracoid and put that right onto the anterior glenoid increasing the face of the of the glenoid thus making it really difficult to dislocate because you've just increased the uh, arc of the glenoid by uh, a substantial amount so 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 what what and what's your answer i mean you you have some thoughts you're obviously very well trained yeah I, you know what, if they if they, if they didn't if they didn't have a ladder J before, I'm almost always going to go to a bank or uh, remplissage. Uh, excuse me, not a ladder J. If they didn't have a remplissage, 
which is another topic, uh, remplissage after letter J. And, and uh, uh, Brian Cole's done a great study on that and success rate actually is very high. Um, but, but doing, I would, I would go, uh, most of the time, I end up going to a revision bank cart with a remplissage and that's been pretty darn successful. We're, we're actually putting together a series of those my, in what's called the Brass Group, which is the Burkhart Research Association of Shoulder Specialists. And, and right now we have over 100 uh, patients with greater than 25% bone loss. And the success rate with Bankart Remplissage is, is uh, looking like it's going to be pretty darn high, you know, um, uh, in, the, in the same vein as a ladder J procedure. So, but that's, that reason, I mean, that, that data collection is pretty early, so I can't really make any firm comments on scientific. Right now, the science clearly says go to a bony procedure. Okay. And, and I truly believe that. So, so rehab is the same four weeks start them on therapy or do you change your rehab on, on a uh, yeah, no, revision? I, 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 I stick with the rehab, you know, I stick with the rehab. I think it, I think it tends to work out pretty well like that, particularly when you have, you know, therapists that you trust and, and that, that, that as, as both Alex and, and Wilson mentioned, you got to tailor it to the patient, right. And you tailor it to the situation and you tailor it to the psychology, the psychology, God bless physical therapists because they are psychologists who happen to be amazing scientists also, you know, I mean, uh, but, but the big part of their job is psychology. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> oh, I think that's right. And you, you hit it on the head. They're with the patient three times a week. You're going to see them for 10 minutes every six, eight weeks. And yep. There, yep. there's a certain uh, dynamic there. God bless them. Yeah, that's for sure. So um, let's start with you, Alex. And then Wilson, what do we forget? What didn't we talk about? What should we add to this uh, presentation of shoulder instability? Goodness. Um, heck, guys, I think we, we covered quite a bit, don't you? <laughs> we did. Yeah. I would say, I would add, the one thing I would add is for multidirectional instability, don't operate, don't operate, don't operate, do not operate unless you have to, okay? Um, I mean, exhaust conservative care for MDI uh, because they just – they do, they do well with conservative care and, and they do mediocre with operations. So, and I, and I think that's a really, really good point. Yeah. Um, Wilson, what do we forget? Yeah, um, I'd, I'd agree. We, we got uh, almost, almost all of it. I'd say what, one thing actually I'll add that uh, Alex taught me uh, when I was a student, his, uh, he was my clinical instructor back in the day. Uh, one of the big things I like to do uh, early on, particularly if you've got a range of motion patient who's not not necessarily cleared for for strength yet, but but you want to kind of get a good proprioception and a joint sense is uh, particularly with athletes is scapular depression. You know, just seated scapular depression, driving home the the sensation of the the humerus just tightly in the glenoid, uh, so that they can get an idea of uh, of that sense and uh, a sense of security early on. Uh, particularly even moving on to full body weight supporting, you know, lifting yourself up out of your chair. Uh, I think that does tend to sort of erase some of the sensation that, you know, your, your, your shoulder is just a golf ball floating around on a, on a big tee there. Do you ever scapular tape those athletes or is it just mostly exercises or kind of explain that a little bit? I, I don't do a ton of taping. I, I tend to use it more if uh, an athlete has a, an injury and 
they're attempting to return. Let's say they've, they've had an AC sprain, a grade one or two. Uh, almost always a rugby player is just hell-bent on getting back in there, toss some rock tape on it, uh, do, do all you can to keep it down and make sure they don't get a fracture. Um, I, I exhaust conservative measures to, to steal Dr. Brady's phrase there uh, and uh, try and strengthen intrinsically before I put sort of a crutch on the shoulder extra. Yeah, I mean, if, if anything, you know, we may throw some kinesio tape on the, the retractors, the scapular retractors, just to give them a, a sense of how that, that pull is and, and where their shoulder blade should be sitting. I don't think that it's going to do a, any miracle job in facilitating, you know, contractile tissue a whole lot, but it will give them that proprioception of keeping that shoulder blade back while they're doing some exercises. That way you can kind of move through some of the other things that are that are going to get them that stability right i agree with that i think i think it i think it's a very good proprioceptive exercise to say hey you need to try to recreate that but i agree you're not you're not going to fix anybody's shoulders with k-tape dr brady what do we forget i tell you what you did a great job leading us through <laughs> the uh instability topic i think you know you guys did a great job well i mean that 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 pretty well covered it i think you know so good job well, listen, thank you very much. You guys, as always, were awesome. And uh, I, I would say if uh, I'm in Knoxville, I'm taking you guys to dinner. So Yeah, that. come on up. Come on up. Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll treat you. Uh, just let me know because I'm, I'm a big fan of eating. <laughs> just, just let me know. Okay, I got a couple of things that I want to point out. I've got two bumper sticker quotes, and I'm struggling with it. One is, when Dr. Brady says so, Put it on a bumper sticker. And the other one is, you want the test answer or my answer? That's right. That's right. I don't know, man. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm, I'm struggling. All right. Uh, Dr. Brady, how does somebody get a hold of you because they want to buy your new bumper stickers? Uh, you, you look us up on the web at tocdocs.com and, and, and uh, contact us that way and, and let us take care of you. All right, Wilson, question to you. How do they get a hold of you? Uh, yes, I, uh, I'm the clinic director at our Alcoa location. So visit us at coreofphysicaltherapy.com locations. Come on down and I'm happy to see you, uh, particularly if Dr. Brady's just made a couple small incisions. But only <laughs> after. And Alex, final one. How do they get a hold of you? So mine's really easy. I'm part of TOC, so just head over to uh, talkdocs.com uh, like you would for Dr. Brady, and I'll be over there as well. All right, listeners, go out to Core Physical Therapy. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, they treat everyone right. It's easypeasy.com. Dr. Rick, you knocked it out of the park. All of you guys did, man. That was a lot of fun. I actually learned something. I know you fun. guys are you're surprised at that. I understand, but... Uh, I'm going to walk with my head held high and my shoulders all stable. Perfect. All right, guys. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for joining In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy.